our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Wrap your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read the Lord's Prayer together as we begin today. We are in a series in the Lord's Prayer if you're joining us for the first time, and we are on the, the, the second petition, your kingdom. So we're going to read these words together. If you don't have a Bible, there is one underneath the center column of seats. You're welcome to grab that and use that as we're working through the scriptures today. We're going to mostly be in, in Matthew, just unpacking what, it, what this, this verse means for us, but we'll uh, also be uh, in a lot of other verses in the Bible as we try to... Uh, figure out what this means. Let's read this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Say this last line, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And we do say amen. Throughout the centuries, the Lord's Prayer has been used as a prayer to comfort God's people. There have been people who have been in the darkest of days and the darkest moments of their life who have used the Lord's Prayer, have said, recited the Lord's Prayer to bring themselves comfort. There have been people who have been uh, on death's door, lying in their bed that have said this prayer as they um, breathe their last breath. And of course, they've, there have been loved ones who are looking on that are reciting the Lord's Prayer over those people in faith that the Lord would somehow be gracious and merciful to usher them into eternity with him. There are those who have prayed the Lord's Prayer as they are in the process of being martyred for their faith. The Lord's Prayer is a comforting prayer. Perhaps you grew up saying the Lord's Prayer. Perhaps you even say it now in your morning or evening devotions. And uh, like many who've gone before us, they've used it as a, as a means of comfort. I mean, think about the words that you're saying, and, and this, they, they go well together. They soothe our souls. But here's what I'm learning the more that I get into, you know, as a pastor, studying what the words of the Lord's Prayer mean uh, and particularly what we're going to talk about today is that praying the words of the Lord's Prayer can actually be kind of dangerous. If you understand what you're saying, of course, we don't have to actually mimic the exact words that Jesus is saying. Uh, the, the goal is that we would take this as a framework, as a model for our prayer. But even if you should model what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, it can be kind of dangerous, especially as we get to the second and third petition that Jesus will uh, begin today. The second petition being your kingdom, the third petition being your will be done. I kind of liken it to a group of people that are set out to mine for some metal. And so they go to a beach not knowing that it was a former like territory where this part of the Civil War was fought. They've got their mine detector out. They're looking for metal. They come upon something that the detector goes off. 
they get their tools out, shovels, they're starting to dig up stuff, clink, clink, they, they, they come upon something. They dig it up, it's a dud, unexploded munition. And what do they do? They start handling it, not knowing the potential explosive power of this, this thing that they've dug up. And I think that's a great metaphor for what the Lord's Prayer is for us. Um, we're in a series again uh, in the Lord's Prayer, Prayer for Everyday Life. And so amongst many goals that you would have for starting a year looking at prayer, one of the things that I'm hoping as your pastor is that prayer for you and me would be more accessible, that we, by unpacking the Lord's Prayer, would know that Jesus is encouraging us um, to come to God the Father with our words, to come like little children, to not be pretentious, uh, to know that he invites us into his presence. Um, and sometimes, you know, because prayer is a discipline, you have to be taught that. Interestingly, one of the, you know, we go to Luke 11 for the other rendition of the Lord's Prayer. And in that rendition, Jesus is coming from some place we don't know. He had been praying. The disciples who grew up as Hebrews, Jewish, in the synagogue, around religious people who knew how to pray, noticed that there's something about Jesus and the way that he prays that's different than the religious leaders and the way that we've been taught to pray. And they say these words, Lord, teach us to pray. And so I want us to learn how to pray by going to the Lord's Prayer. So here's the outline of our sermon series. We started with, the, or with, with Father, and this, Jesus is telling us to begin our prayer saying, Father, and really more than anything, this is an invitation to us to approach God as, as Abba. That's the Aramaic word that Jesus would have used in his day. Or in our vernacular, our culture today, it would be almost like saying Papa. Think about a little kid saying Papa. Jesus is inviting us to... Um, to treat the, not treat, but come into the presence of the God of the universe. Think about the, how the Lord's Prayer starts in, in Matthew's version. Our Father in heaven. The psalmist says, you are God in heaven, and I'm here on earth, so I need to let my words be few. Jesus isn't refuting that. God is high and holy, but he's saying that at the same time that God is high and holy, because of me, the person and work of Jesus, I'm allowing you to come and call God Abba, Papa. It's this, it's this invitation to be as intimate with Jesus, as personable with God, rather, as Jesus is himself. What a beautiful invitation to start our prayer with a word like this, Father, Abba, Papa. And then the next petition is, is your name. Both Matthew and Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer actually says, hallowed be your name. Interesting word, right? I mean, what's the first thing I think of? I think of Halloween. Like, how can Halloween be a praiseworthy? The word means to, to reverence, to, to give honor to, to praise. And the idea here, as Nick so uh, just greatly uh, unpacked last week, is that we're asking for the name of God, his character, his reputation, all that God is, that it would become, that we would reverence it, even as we're communicating with him, that it would be known in how we live out our life, but also that God's name and all that he is would be um, acknowledged all around the world, amongst all of his creation. That's what we're praying. Here's a couple things that Nick said that just really stuck with me. 
He said, preaching, hallowed, uh, praying, hallowed be your name, is meant to remind us that it's not about us. Even when I pray to God, asking him for things, it's not about me. It's, it's about God. That's what, we say, that's what we mean when we're saying, your name be hallowed. Prayer is not the center of our existence. I'm quoting Nick. Getting to know a person, God is the center. You know, sometimes we can just say prayers. I mean, it's just like a mantra. I'm going to say these specific words to get God to do what I want God to do. And, and this reminds us that you can do that, and, and God is so gracious, he might even honor you in that. But here's, here's the goal of prayer, is that you would not just get what you want, you would get God himself, because he is the center of your prayer. Now, here's what's, here's what's interesting to me about both of these beginning phrases of the Lord's Prayer, is that these would have been radical ways to pray. So when Jesus is uttering these words to his disciples, they wouldn't, have been, they wouldn't have prayed like this. So the patriarchs in the Old Testament would not have approached God like this. They, wouldn't, they, they weren't even allowed to say the divine name Yahweh. They couldn't have said that. It was disallowed. It was not allowed. Abraham and the patriarchs, David, Solomon, none of the prophets would have prayed like this. John the Baptist, the one that ushered in the, the new covenant, would not have prayed like this. And so for Jesus to invite us to pray like this because of his person and his work um, is amazing. And here's my point for today. Um, If we think that praying like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, is kind of a radical way to pray, uh, what we'll find today is that in this this second and third petition, um, the thing that Jesus is teaching us to pray is kind of dangerous. We're talking about the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew's gospel, verses 9 and 10, Jesus says, when you pray, verse, uh, chapter 6, he says, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if someone were to ask you, somebody off the street in the metro, they know you're a Christian, walk up to you, like, so what's, what is the kingdom of God? What would you say to them? All right, I'm not, don't, don't just yell out. Um, that's a good question. Fortunately, the Bible tells us. But before we get to the Bible, we have, we have actually natural um, glimpses of kingdoms in our current day world. I think immediately of the United Kingdom. Okay, the United Kingdom, uh, uh, a kingdom, a territory over which a king reigns. The United Kingdom is not a good example of that, but because there's a queen that's queen, king, right? The queen reigns over uh, Britain and Wales and Scotland and Ireland, okay? Saudi Arabia is another present-day kingdom on the earth where a king or queen reigns over a territory of, of people. And so the idea, the kingdom um, is this territory where the rule and reign over a king is, is accepted. Those people accept this king or queen as their ruler. And so it kind of makes sense that um, God, the kingdom of God, would be very similar, right? The kingdom of God would be the territory, wherever God reigns. And since God reigns everywhere, God is the creator of, every, of, of all. We wouldn't be here if God hadn't created. We'd have nowhere to live if God had not made the earth. If he has created all, the kingdom of God is literally 
everywhere. Y'all agree with that? From what you've read in the Bible, from what you've heard, from what you've taught, Bible study, Sunday school, all that stuff? True. Even if you don't believe it, it is true. But here's the thing. The Bible says a whole lot more. There's books upon books that have been written about the kingdom of God, what it means, what it, what it is. Um, the kingdom of God is a mega theme in the, in the Bible, in Scripture. I was in seminary. My Old Testament professor started, a, I can't remember which, which actual course it was, but he asked this question of our class. What's the, what's the most dominant theme in all the Bible? And we all had different, different answers. Some said Jesus. Some said the gospel. Some said love. I said the kingdom of God. And that was because of the influence of my pastor in North Carolina. This, I mean, this was his message. And um, I mean, of course, scholars all differ as to what the dominant theme of the Bible is. But here's one reason why I think it's the kingdom of God. Jesus said it, right? I mean, you can't go wrong with Jesus, Jesus, right? Every, to, to, Jesus is the solution to every problem. He's the answer to every question. Jesus. So kids in the room, even adults, when somebody asks you a question, just say, Jesus, right? And so this was Jesus' main message as he came you know, on the scene. In Mark's gospel, it portrays the first words of Jesus that he utters it's, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This was Jesus' message. So I think it's one of the dominant themes, if not the most dominant theme in all of the Bible. And that might make it sound like a New Testament motif, but actually this idea of the kingdom of God spans the Testaments. Okay? It, the, the, the kingdom of God theme ties the Old Testament to the New Testament. In one sense, the kingdom of God has always been present. God has always been the sovereign ruler over the universe. And that was established way before the Garden of Eden. He just, you know, he created people and then he had a people to, to reign over. So Adam and Eve in the garden had God as their king. Later, God would create the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. He would give him his law. He would declare himself as not just king over the universe, king over this sovereign people, but king of heaven and all of earth. But I think at the theme of the, 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 the heart of this theme of kingdom is the idea of God's messianic kingdom. And that's a message that we get really starting in the Old Testament that spans again the Testaments and takes it all the way to the end of the Bible. It would be a kingdom ruled by God's appointed Messiah, Jesus, who will not only be a redeemer of his people, but he would literally be their king. So that's what the Bible is getting at in this idea of kingdom. John the Baptist comes on the scene and what's his message? John is abrupt, kind of rough, right? And he, he has no fluff to his, his mantra. It's like, repent, you hypocrites, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John gets, John gets put in prison. He gets beheaded. Jesus comes on the scene. And the gospel writers tell us that the very first words out of Jesus' mouth Perhaps, you know, when he starts his mission is uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. You need to repent. 
And so in, in literally, this idea of Jesus coming and being the king is, is prevalent in the, Old Test, in the New Testament, prophes, uh, promised, prophesied in the, in the Old Testament, comes to fruition in Jesus. And so Jesus, literally, all his sermons are peppered with this idea of the kingdom of God. Jesus says the kingdom of God was, was with them. He said it's literally here. In other words, Jesus says, all right. Uh, a kingdom is in reality when the king is present. I'm here. The kingdom of God is is near you. But what does that mean for us today? What does the kingdom of God mean for us today? I could never exhaust this topic of the kingdom of God because it really is a mega uh, a mega theme in all of Scripture. So, in terms, what I want to do for us today is talk about it in terms of prayer. What are we praying for when we pray? your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we asking for? What does it suggest? And I'm going to suggest to you that this is a multi-level prayer with at least three components to it. And the first component is this. When we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying a, a, a future cosmic focused prayer. This prayer has future cosmic focus. When we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are principally praying for the future kingdom of Jesus to come. We're saying, come, Lord Jesus, for Jesus to return to planet earth, for Jesus to set up his kingdom and make everything right so that what happens on earth mirrors what has already happened in heaven. For Jesus to come and for there to be perfect obedience to the will of God. I think that's what we're praying at the broadest sense to this prayer. And it starts in the Old Testament. Because when we look back at the Old Testament, which is where Jesus is getting all his teaching from, right? What you find is the idea of God is the king. And we see that in the Psalms. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in heavens and his kingdom rules over all. What's the psalmist saying? God is king. There's nothing that exists that's outside of his rulership. But the, prob- the prophets would also uh, promise this. Ezekiel promised it. Zechariah promised it. Malachi promised it. Most prolifically, Isaiah promised it. And what all of these prophets were basically saying, even if they didn't use the word kingdom, is that God is coming. He's coming to be a shepherd over his people. And God is king coming to bring to its fullest capacity his kingdom. As it is in heaven, he's going to make it happen on earth. But the prophet that I want to focus on is the prophet Daniel. Daniel was one of many of the Israelites that was exiled to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Interesting story. If you read Daniel 1 and 2, you'll get the the gist of, of, of what I'm talking about. And so the Israelites are exiled. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are, are young men that have been taken and trained and brought into the king's service. It is uh, unfolded over time that Daniel can interpret dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 2, starts having dreams. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he sees this statue. The head is gold. The arms are iron. The body is uh, metal, the feet are clay, and out of the mountains comes this rock that comes and destroys the statue. Head falls off, the, the whole thing is, is demolished. And 
uh, Nebuchadnezzar basically goes to all his wise men, his pagan wise men, and says, hey, I need somebody to tell me what my dream was. And they come to uh, Nebuchadnezzar and say, well, if king, if you tell us what the dream was, we'll interpret it. And Nebuchadnezzar was like, uh-uh, that's easy. I want you to tell me what I was dreaming and then interpret it for me. And they're like, well, who can do that? Fast forward. They go to Daniel because the king is about to destroy all the wise men. And Daniel has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pray to the Lord. All right, we need to fast, guys. And the Lord gives Daniel both the dream and the interpretation. And uh, to make a long story, I mean, quick, quick read in those first two chapters of Daniel. But uh, Daniel interprets the dream, and it represents um, human empires throughout history, first starting with Babylon and then the you know, the Persians and the Ottomans and the Romans that would come and dethrone each other. And then the rock coming out of the mountain is this final kingdom that's represented that would overtake them all. And here's what we read in Daniel 2.44. In those days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring to an end and it shall never stand. In the days of those kings, he's talking about in the days of all of the lands and the rulers and the kingdoms, we call them presidents and prime ministers in our day. He's saying in, in the days of those, there's going to come a kingdom that will be set up and it will break all these other kingdoms. And last line, it shall stand forever. And we're still waiting for this this promise of God to come, this vision that God gave to a pagan king. It's interesting how Daniel referred to Nebuchadnezzar. He called him not just king, he called him king of kings, the one that God has given him. I mean, he was using divine language to talk to Nebuchadnezzar, but then he basically prophesied that God was going to throw you down. I mean, you're going to be, like, demolished. By the way, Daniel actually did. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, he did make this statue. And this is the statue that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to, to bow down to. Here's the point. This is what the Old Testament prophets and the, the, the psalmists are, are, are echoing. There's a coming kingdom, a time in the future when God is going to set up his kingdom through his promise to see the king, the Messiah. And so Jesus comes on the scene. And, and what does Jesus talk about? He talks about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here because the king is here. The kingdom of God is near you. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. And surely one aspect of the kingdom that Jesus talks about is that it's here, it's near, it's among you. But Jesus himself also talks about a factor of the kingdom of God that it's future. It's not here yet. It's coming. And here's what Jesus meant by that. He's promising that there's going to come a day when he himself would come. He would set up his kingdom. He would rule over his people forever and ever. Amen. One, one example of that is Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. Skipping to verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, those of you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. Now, in context, Jesus is talking about people who are going to make it in and people who aren't. Sheep 
and goes. But the broader context of this, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about the same thing that the Old Testament prophets were referring to, the same things that the, the, the psalmists were echoing in their praise to God, that there's still a future kingdom coming, future from where we live even now, where Jesus himself will step back into human history. He's going to physically return to earth. He's going to set up his kingdom right here. And in that final day, this prayer that Jesus is teaching us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to be lifting our hands, singing the songs that we were singing this morning because it's going to, it's going to be, come to fruition. And it's going to be really a forever and ever amen on earth as it is in heaven. In the first year of our church, we went through a series called Story, and it was tracing the storyline of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And I mean, that, that's the storyline of the Bible. That's the articulation of, of the gospel of God uh, as the Bible lays it out. And um, I give you that because the, 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 the climax of the story, the consummation of all that comes, there's a new heaven and earth. God brings heaven to earth, and he's with his people forever and ever. And we got this beautiful verse in Revelation 21, 3 through 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them, and they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's a beautiful verse. It, it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen in the future. But here's the thing, folks. When we, when, we, when we pray, not necessarily the words that Jesus is saying, you don't have to say, Lord, your kingdom come. But when you even gesture at those verses, you're praying for this to happen. You're praying for a day that, that we would see no more tears. I mean, I know you all, and I know the situations of your life and of your extended families, and we've had in our church in the last couple of weeks some things that all of us can cry about, that we shed tears, still shedding them. It's that you're praying for diseases and disabilities that happen in our world because of sin to just go away, that God would just snap his fingers and they go away. We're praying for death to be swallowed up in the victory of the Lord. Some of you have lost your loved ones just this week and you're grieving because of that. We're crying for no more. We're praying for no more crying, no more pain in our bodies. I mean, just all the sin, all the ways that our world is messed up. God, would you bring an end to even the sin in my own life forever and ever? Amen. When you're, when you're praying, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we're praying for. We're praying for this future cosmic revelation of God to come, to come press in on the world that we live in and make it all new. Amen. We're also praying for the present ministry focus. I get excited about I mean, I get excited about the first one. I get excited about this one because this, this touches us where we are right now. God's kingdom is not just focused on Jesus returning, fixing all that's broken in some future time. When we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for Jesus' present work right here on earth, primarily in the church. That's who you are. We're praying for the work that Jesus does in the church and in 
our own lives. We're asking Jesus to work in his church because there's a sense in which the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. Jesus talked about the kingdom being his future ministry, but he also talked about it being his present ministry. The the, the kingdom of God is here now. It's present with you because the king is present. So when he starts off his his ministry, I already mentioned this verse, Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is near because he was near. Okay, the kingdom of God has come upon you because I'm here in your presence. And so for all of us that believe in his name, the kingdom of God is with us, near us, because Jesus is literally in us by his spirit. But but here's the interesting thing about this idea of present ministry of Jesus in regards to the kingdom. When Jesus comes, he sets off this chain reaction whereby his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the spirit ushers in this age of the church. And so the kingdom presses in to the church so that the church becomes the agent by which the kingdom of God is is expressed in the world that we live today. And the church is not a building, folks, right? The church is you. So the kingdom of God is in you and it's pressing in to our culture through you. So when you choose to follow Jesus, when you individually receive all the Bible says about Jesus, when you believe in his name, come to faith in him, repent of your sin, become a follower, a disciple of Jesus, you essentially become an important part of Jesus' kingdom right here on earth. You become a part of the movement of God, of God, the kingdom of God. Just you're, an, you're like an undercover agent for Jesus, even if you don't want to be. And that's why one of the ways the New Testament writers talked about coming to faith in Jesus is by inserting this idea of coming into the kingdom associated with our faith. Paul writes in Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul is talking about how you're getting saved here. But he's saying, you know what? Jesus comes and he snatches you out of the grips of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. And he graciously sets you into a, a, under a new ruler and rulership. In his great redemption, by which he gives you forgiveness of, of sins. And so if you're a Christian, you've moved out of one kingdom into another. Satan doesn't rule you anymore. Even though the kingdom that Jesus is going to set up is still future, there's a sense that we are a part of his kingdom right now if you've trusted in him. If you're a Christian, Jesus is already your king. You you don't have another king. You don't serve some other ruler. You're no longer a part of darkness or any of the things that Satan controls. You are no longer a part of the kingdom of this world for which Satan rules. Christian, you literally have become a representative of a kingdom that's yet to come. But here's the trick. You represent it right now in the here and now. The kingdom is coming. You are an emissary to that kingdom right here on the earth right now. And that means our church, any church, the churches in our local neighborhood, the churches all around the world are like little embassies. 
Little embassies all around the world where ambassadors are representing Jesus. I've just elevated your position and title in life. In fact, you should stop calling yourself whatever title or position that you give yourself in your, you know, your, your practical life because you're not just that. You might be that for funding purposes, to keep you alive and keep things floating in your house. But your true reality is you're not just a native Virginian, if there's, if there's any such thing in a congregation like ours. Any, any unicorns here like you were like raised like you're, you don't count. All right, we got like four out of all these people, okay? That, you're, you're not even an American. You're, you are, but that's not the dominant theme of your life. You're, you're in the kingdom of God, which means you're a Christian, a little Christ. You've been brought into the kingdom as a representative of the great king. I love what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20. That is, Christ in God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This verse is obviously talking about what God does in Jesus to, to bridge the gap between your sin and God's holiness Jesus, obviously, his person and his work does that. But what God immediately does for you is he gives you a title that you don't deserve, that you may never live up to it, but it's still yours to be had. By his spirit, you are thrust into an important position in the kingdom. You're an ambassador. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador goes from one territory, sanctioned, commissioned by uh, a sovereign to go into another territory and represent them there. That's what God has commissioned you to do, that you would be a representative of his kingdom on the earth. And so if you've trusted in Jesus, that is what you've been called to. Every follower of Jesus is an ambassador, a representative of the king, the true king, not an earthly king, an eternal king. And here's the beautiful part, at least for me, every church is an embassy of, of that king. So when you pray, your kingdom come, we're not only praying for that final expression of the kingdom when Jesus comes back, we're praying for the effective ministry of the kingdom now in the church. More specifically, we're praying for the success of, of all the local churches that exist, that they would be not just embassies, but People who are far away from the kingdom will be drawn to those little outposts now. We're praying for our own missional efforts to share the story of God so that people will be drawn to our king now. We're praying for God's hand, inviting people to our, to our community groups and, in, and reaching people in our neighborhoods, inviting them to Sunday worship gathering. We're praying for the growth of his church now. That's what it means to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because it's both future, but it's also present. Here's the third aspect. This prayer has an immediate personal focus. And for me, perhaps for you, this is where it gets dangerous. Because if we pray your kingdom come, there's an aspect of this prayer that really is about my heart. God is trying to get at our heart. This isn't just about him ruling out there and the unknown, and then bringing that to earth. And he, you know, like our, like our president, you know, I know he's there. I know he has a little bit of say over what happens in, in our country. But, I mean, President Trump can't speak directly to me. 
Jesus is, is he's nullifying all that, saying, hey, if I'm the king, I'm the king not just out here, I'm the king over your heart. Would your kingdom come, Lord, in me? Would your will be done in me? Would you, live, would, would, would you make it so that I live and would even want to obey you, almost like the angels obey you in heaven perfectly, willingly, submissively, joyfully, wholeheartedly, without question, because that's what the angels are doing in heaven right now. And this is where this prayer gets dangerous. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of easy, not easy, it's not hard for us to pray for, for the cosmic kingdom to come. We kind of want that. Most of us have seen enough hurt in our own lives. We've seen enough sin and destruction in the world around us. To, you know, you know, this world is going to get harder before it gets easier. Come, Lord Jesus. It's easy for us to pray that. It is a little harder, perhaps a little more challenging when we pray that God would work in our world. Because if we want God to work in our world it gets a little bit more close to us. If I want my friends and family members, my neighbors to come to faith, I might have to actually get involved. I might have to open my mouth, get up early, pray a prayer. I might have to like walk out of my door, go next door to my neighbor, knock on the door, and by the witness of my life and the testimony of my own relationship with Jesus, like live and talk like I believe in Jesus. And that gets a little challenging. But for us to pray, would your kingdom come in me? Think about that. Have you prayed those words? Did you mean them when you prayed it? That's a wowza. At least when I think about that, it's like, wow, Lord. In other words, would you pray, when you're praying that, it's like, would you help me see any part of my life that hasn't already come under your rule and reign? Because you know we can be a Christian and still have all kind of life outside of Jesus just going on. Like, all right, Lord, I'm going to be a Christian at Bible study tonight. I'm going to be a Christian at, you know, a couple morning devotions this week. I'm surely going to lift up the banner of Jesus when I go to church. I'm going to sing some songs, raise my hand. I'm going to say amen to the pastor. But does this invade your life so that it consumes all of you. Lord, would you cause your kingdom to come and will it be your will be done in me to bring about whatever you would wish to happen in me. When you pray that prayer, folks, I mean, that's like Christianity 10,000.1. And it's a dangerous prayer to pray. I'm going to tell you a story. I'll be done. So God gave a word to the prophet Jeremiah. And uh, he had him go down to the potter's house. And the Lord conveyed to Jeremiah, all right, when you get there, I'm going to tell you what I want you to hear. And so Jeremiah goes to the potter's house. This is Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah gets there. The potter has clay. It's on the spinning wheel. He's molding it. And then the text says the, the clay becomes molded. Actually, the, the, the words that the ESV uses, it becomes spoiled. I have no idea what spoiled clay looks like, smells like. I, I, I'm assuming the word means like rotted. It becomes unuseful for the potter to use. You would expect that the potter is going to take that clay and just dismiss it, just get rid of it, throw it away. That's not what he does. He takes that spoiled, rotted, unuseful clay and he mixes it with some good clay. And then he begins to reform 
whatever he's making into the perfect image that he wants it to be. And then God speaks to Jeremiah these words. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Here's, here's what this says to me. What God is saying to the nation of Israel through Jeremiah is still true about us today. It's still true about us as a church. It's still true about all of those who are in the body of Christ at what? It's true about you and me individually. If we're followers of Jesus, God is saying to all of us, can I not do with you, Nick, Jen, Angela, Anu, Zoe, can I not do with you what I will to cause about my will to come in your life? Like clay in the potter's hand, so are you. And I think each one of us, we're like clay in the potter's hand. I'm the potter, you're the clay. You should say that to yourself to remind yourself of, of who God really is as the king over your life, king over a kingdom. And so let me finish with this. When we follow the, the, the pattern of prayer, when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're firstly praying for this cosmic future kingdom to come. And we're saying with the angels who are already in heaven and the saints who've gone before us, we're saying, come, Lord Jesus. But we're also praying for the kingdom work that God has given us to do right now. And we're saying to the Lord, Lord, would you build your work? Would you build your church Would your church shine as a bride for you, as a beacon? And would you attract all those people who are far away from you into your kingdom, not in some future time? Would you do it right here in my day so that I can rejoice in all that you've done through us? But here's the thing. We can't dismiss what we're also praying, that our own hearts and souls, that we would, this would be our cry, Lord, would you mold me, almost like the potter with with a lump of clay, we're agreeing with the same thing that Jeremiah saw in his prophecy. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You're the king, I'm the subject, you're the potter, I am the clay. So that's the second petition. Of course, then it gets even a little bit more tough because the third petition is is what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the next thing we're going to ask God to pray, to, to help us pray is, Lord, help me do your will. More on that next week. Let's pray. Lord, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we know that's the reality. That's the reality that we live in. And even as we say that, we know that your kingdom is now, but it's not here in its fullest Your will is being done on earth, but it's not being done by everybody such that it it pervades the earth. And help us to see the importance of our prayers, that when we pray these simple yet profound words, we're inviting you to move through your church, through us individually, that your kingdom, perfect as it is in heaven, would press through into our kingdom 
and would pervade our land, would pervade our lives, and would utterly change, change us all. So God, we do pray that. Would your kingdom come? Let your will be done. Amen and amen. Amen.